Welcome to Unholy Passion. It's uh, me and Ralph hanging out on a beautiful Saturday morning for me and afternoon for Ralph because we're transatlantic communications using uh, the wonderful technology that's available to us today. Yes. How's it going, Ralph? Very much. Um, to, uh, to put it in terms of the topic we're talking about today, I'm looking California and feeling Minnesota. <laughs> That's an awesome line, man. <laughs> it's like, Dude, yeah, there like there's some great lyrics on this record we're going to talk about. But yeah, like basically, I'm okay. But um, I don't know. Like the last week of teaching in school, and it's it's just it's such a drag. Now, this is the first night. Today, I can't leave my house after 9 p.m. There's a curfew now. And if you get caught outside of your apartment, you will pay 300 euros. Wow. Yes. And you can leave your house at five in the morning. So they try to prevent people from hanging out and partying at, like, at home because they have no clue how to stop this pandemic anymore because they're failing with the whole like, uh, vaccination strategies they have. Um, but they, they raised the bar. Like The level is like, I think, 100 people. From like with it, when a hundred people from a hundred thousand in the city get ill in one day, there are certain restrictions, and they lowered that. So they said like, okay, now with a hundred, uh, we have to shut down the shops and everything. But for schools, they raised it to two hundred, and they said like the last thing to shut down are schools, and the first thing to open are schools, and they were still wondering like, yeah. Damn, we shut out. We shut down all these shops and everything. Why is there still this pandemic going on? Well, because all the cubicle offices with 80 people and it work. All the companies are still working. All the schools are still open, but like we can't do anything. So now, I will like spend my day outside, and then at 9 9 p.m. I will go home and uh, spend my evening at home alone. Yeah. You know? That's how I'm living, man. Uh, I mean, the, the things out here aren't, aren't as draconian, I think, here in, uh, in, in the state. In different, all the states are different, but in Jersey, it's not, it's not as, uh, as brutal. Um, you know, I mean, uh, as this coming Monday, uh, I will be eligible to get my vaccination so I can make my appointment for, uh, <clears throat> for the, oh, you know, the first of two vaccine yeah. in, in, injections and uh, – We'll see how that goes. You know, I mean, yeah. it's funny that I had to wait. Like, I, I know a lot of people that have already been vaccinated, like in New York State. Uh, yeah. That This is the one th time I'm like, man, I wish I still lived in New York <laughs> because I probably would have been vaccinated by now. I hear like all these stories from people. Like I, I spoke to Jeshek of, uh, of Woe. Um, the other day and he said like he's been vaccinated and he he, he works in a fucking forest <laughs> but like he has like he he was on a list from a pharmacy and he still knew people and they said like you can bring people and so the american system is so much more like chill you know like okay we have this stuff you're legible now let's do this in germany you have to fill in papers and there are these hierarchies and still to this day like now they like the the primary school teachers, the kindergarten teachers, they're all vaccinated. But like the reason that I'm not vaccinated is because I teach classes from the fifth to the 10th grade. So the youngest kids are 11 and the government says, well, these kids how, know how to operate their masks, so they should be okay. And it's like, okay, cool, thanks. But like train conductors and train drivers are vaccinated now and 
I, I just don't get the concept anymore. I'm just patiently waiting, but I kind of develop a, an amount of uh, vaccination jealousy, I would call it. Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat, man, because like I was saying, I, I had to wait. A, I mean, I, I'm not vaccinated, and I, I'm having to wait yeah. a long time, man. It's like, um, yeah. Yeah, like I said, everyone, a lot, almost everyone I know that lives in New York has been vaccinated. Uh, mm. California, you know, Jeff Kashid is vaccinated, you know? Mm. And uh, in Jersey, I, I wasn't eligible. I'm not until Monday. And that's kind of a bummer, I think. And uh, yeah. I mean, and, and I, I mean, I just got another COVID test on Friday. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'll, you know, in the next couple of days, I'll know what, you know, probably today, actually. They usually turn over the results overnight. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> that's the COVID um, cough. So, <laughs> no, they'll the have, yeah, <laughs> they'll, um, usually they turn the results over. Uh, within a day or two. So, I mean, I'm not, yeah. like I said, I, I don't really go anywhere. So we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. But like, I have to go to school and that that's annoying. But, um, the, the only thing that we got, like I told you before, we got 80 of these FFP2 masks. We got a PDF to how to open the windows properly. <laughs> and now they have, they've got these self tests. So we've mm. got like s- these tests for the kids and the kids have to do them themselves and we can do them so at least I can do a test whenever I'm in school. But like aside from uh, aside from working, I go to band practice like once a week, and I meet Danny once a week, and that's about it. That's all I do. Yeah. So like I, I'm okay with the curfew because I would be at home anyhow. But uh, it's just it's just this idea of like I can't go outside if I would like to. Yeah, that that's really really oppressive, man. I I, I don't I, I don't think I'd like that. I mean, that's there's no curfews per se, but a lot of stuff like for example, restaurants I believe still have to close at ten, mm. and um, a lot of business type places like for example, um, like if you're gonna go lift weights, like usually those gyms close at eight o'clock. Mm. Which is, you know, which is early, you know, and they don't open until eight in the morning. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of types of those places are open at like five and they close at 11 or, you know, mm. or in New York City, they're there. Some of them are open 24 hours, you know, because people yeah, work, we, work weird hours over there, you know. Yeah, we got those two, yeah. but yeah. they're all, all still closed. Like I said, last time I was in the gym was, I think, in October. I started going to, um, like, it's like a chain gym here uh called retro fitness and um you know it's like one of those like generic places that but you you have to wear a mask when you when you work out which is really really kind of hard i think do they at least have a retro soundtrack in the background like nah, it's just like, like <laughs> it's a typical bullshit you would imagine at a gym yeah okay you know yeah. so I, I always have a headphones in but i those those workouts for me are generally only like a half an hour. I just go in, do some deadlifts, and like leave. Yeah. You know, I don't. I'm not really into like lifting weights per se. You know. Yeah. But you know, just to not get injured and keep my you know physical, you know, yeah. like physicality happening. I like certain things. You know. Yeah. Same here. I just go there for like a half an hour, maybe forty five minutes, do like back workouts because I had this the surgery on my herniated disc right. a few years back so i always have to keep this in check and i mean i do like exercises here do a bit of yoga and uh but like the 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 gadgets you have in the gym they're just a bit better for that so i'm, I'm missing this but like i i don't want to hang out there it's no. just like too many people i don't want to be like hang, to like not in a room with yeah 
Yeah, my my attention span. I mean, I like doing like this, like just strength stuff. You know what I mean? Like dead. I, I enjoy doing things like deadlifts, squats. You know, kettlebells, yeah. like things like that. Uh, you know, leg 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 exercises. But uh, I my attention span probably maximum is about forty minutes. And if you go in there and do your thing, you can you can be in and out in forty minutes and get a really good workout. I think. Yeah. So it's again program length, like the topic of the records you always have. <laughs> yeah. So um, aside from that, hey, I have to thank you for um, just everyone to let everyone know that me, Ralph, and Randy are actually really good. You know, we're friends. Like we communicate. We got like this cool, like you know, group thread on uh, on our Facebook Messenger. We share stuff all the time. And this past week, uh, Ralph shared uh, two awesome bands, which um, I wasn't aware of. Uh, one of them is Fearnosk. Which is that how I pronounce it? Yeah, Fernosk. I would say it the same way. Yeah. Okay. And then Sigurd. And, and uh, yeah. Fernosk is um, a German black metal band, but they're kind of in that. Uh, like when I listen to them, I also hear uh, they might also be influenced by the kind of more epic stuff like Neurosis and and you know maybe uh, you know Swans like that sort of stuff as yes, well. Yes. Yes. And yeah. uh, I really enjoy that. And once you sent that link, I kind of started listening to some of the other stuff that's out there online. And then um, yeah. more, more recently, you sent over Sigurd, which is like a a very uh, aggressive hardcore band, which uh, they're from Italy, I believe, right? Yes, correct. Yeah. So, do you know what's what's? Do uh, you have any more information on these bands? Uh, well, I can tell you a lot about Fernask because I'm, I'm friends with the main guy in that band. So it's pretty much, it started as a one person project and this guy is like, is the real deal. Like, as, as I told you, he's, he's a studies, study cellist and he, he works like in orchestras and like at the national, uh, the, 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 the opera of Cologne and shit like this. And, uh, yeah, he started this as a, like a one-man project. He he speaks Norwegian and he's really into like the cultural stuff and uh, it's a very kind of this this uh, orthodox kind of ritualistic black metal. They also have like they wear robes and they kind of look like sun when they play, okay. but just like like they have these. Uh, these antlers, skull masks as well. So like they go all in when they play live. But it's basically him writing all the stuff, and he has like some some guys that play live with him now and then. And um, he he uh, he lives like close by, and I met him at a show once, and we got talking, and he's like, uh, then it's like, yeah, yeah, my band uh, Fernask. I'm like, holy shit, you're the guy from Fernask. And he's such a nice guy, and he's so witty when it comes to everything that he's doing with music. And yeah, like I, I actually wanted to like bounce in in our in our staff lounge, the, like the staff lounge. Call it. <laughs> yeah, um, I wanted to bounce the idea if we should do like an everything went black episode about like current German bands people should know about. And uh, Fernask is definitely one of the bands that they deserve way more attention. And the song that I sent you is like a teaser for the new record coming out in, in, in April, like late April, I think very soon, I think. Yeah, they're, they're amazing, man. They're also live. They're a good band. And um, yeah, more people should check them out. So if you're into occult, atmospheric, very melodic, Black metal that also has like like you said, Swansea, Swans esque kind of parts. 
this should be right up your alley. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you <clears throat> if, um, yeah, if I, I'd, I'd be interested in, in interviewing him for sure, you know, as, as well as doing an episode about, uh, German black metal. Yeah. Yeah, because I also send you like sulfur ion and all like there's a lot of lot going on and uh, I think like the German black metal scene in itself is not that recognizable and um, because they're primarily copycats, but there are some genuinely good bands that I think especially like American listeners and like international listeners should check out. So like if you're down for this, we could do this at some point. Yeah. And I can ask, I can ask him if he would, would be down to do a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. It's funny. I think Germany also and the, in the U S like we both fall into the, that kind of, um, you know, since we're not technically not originators of the current, that style of black metal. Yes. Correct. Um, you know, there's like, you know, we we take a second tier role, I think, at times. Like USBM yeah. is like maybe not as accepted in Europe as it is as it possibly should be. Even though I think some of my favorite bands are from the US at this point. Yeah, so, same here. And that's I think that's maybe why when Ultra started, they we were like the odd ones out because my influence derived basically from. Bands like Weakling, Ashbore, and uh, Wolves in the Throne Room when they started, and this kind of stuff. Leviathan, Lurker of Chalice. And a lot of people here don't know these bands. Like, even like a good friend of mine who is, who's a writer for a really prolific magazine, like, I was in his place and I played him Lurker of Chalice and Leviathan, and he's like, I've never heard, like, I heard the names, but they're so, this is fucking amazing. I'm like, dude, why, how the fuck do you not know these bands? They're just not like American bands are just not happening in the broader sense. Like Wolves in the Throne Room, a big band now, but um, the the rest is still right, way under the radar. Yeah, you know, it's uh, also there's that band Nightbringer and Atlas that are in U.S. Yes. bands, which I really yeah. really enjoy those bands. And yeah, there's that book that just came out a little while ago, the USBM uh, book yeah. that uh, I, features a lot of a lot of the bands that were just mentioned. Yeah, I can't wait to get a copy of this, but still, like, there's you can only order it in the states, and the shipping is way too expensive. So I hope a bit that there's this the cult never dies. The guy Dial Patterson, who also wrote that book, and he's got a a big store now. He's I think he's located in the UK, and usually he gets these decibel books and also like the bigger black metal things. So I hope he will get a copy so I can save on shipping because I think I tried to order it. And I think it's like twice twice as much shipping as the book costs. Oh, dude! <laughs> when <laughs> shipping, uh, when I shipped uh, the records, the Tombs records, man, I was blown oh, away by how expensive the shipping was. I, I saw that. And I'm like, wow, this is ridiculous, man. Yeah, but you know, it's it's the cost of a gift, man. Like, I don't give a shit, yeah. really. It's like if I had to, yeah. as as a business, if I had to ship overseas, I would probably complain. You know, but yeah. you know, I had to send copies to to Europe. I, you know, Valnoir, you, you know, Dwid, you know, people yeah. like that were contributors or cl close friends. You know, so it's not. Yeah. It was a gift. You know, they're gifts. So I don't, yeah. I don't mind dropping money like that, really. You know? Dude, I'm I'm the, I'm the same way. You know, like the the ropes record is finally in the pressing plant. We finally have an artwork together and everything. 
So uh, once once they are done, I will send a copy for you and Randy over. Hell yeah! And I also will send one to Jeshek. And like I've got a bunch of friends in the states. And I mean the shipping compared for, like from shipping a record from here to you guys is way cheaper. But still, it's like a bit pricey. And I'm like, dude, but this is like who else should I give the records to? These are my friends. I want to have like want them to have the records. Well, yeah. if it if it makes any difference, um, you know, I see Randy once a month now, like in person. And yeah. uh, if you want to just send both both copies of the record, you know, to either yeah. one of us, we can do that maybe. Yeah, that was that was I think that was my plan to send it to you. Also, like include some shirts or something and uh, send it to you because yeah, I, uh, I I so it's so cool to finally hear you guys back in the room, not over a phone line. Yeah. Actually, um, next month we're gonna record uh, an episode with Jeff about uh, ISIS wavering radiant. So that's gonna be oh, cool. yeah. sweet. Okay, yeah, Jeff, Jeff's from, that uh, he's from Connecticut originally, and he's going finally after all, you know, being vaccinated. Jeff's going to go see his parents, and um, yeah, you know, we're all going to hang out. By then, I'm still probably not going to be vaccinated. <laughs> the only guy who, in, you know, out of everyone I know right now, is still like raw dogging <laughs> it out there. But you know, you can can have one of these Walter White body condoms, you know, yeah, like the drug that could <laughs> cook some meth and also not like not be infected. Yeah, probably. That's probably how I'll have to, I'll have to roll. And, I mean, who knows? <laughs> I mean, we'll find out next week what the status is because I'm going to try to yeah. make an appointment. You know, we'll see. Fing, fingers fingers crossed, man. Yeah. So let's go on to uh, today's topic, and um, yes, that is uh, Soundgarden's uh, third studio album, Bad Motor Finger. Yes. Yeah. Uh, released September 24th, 1990, 1991, recorded spring of 1991. The studios involved were Studio D in Sausalito, Bear Creek Studios, Woodville, Washington, and A&M Studios in L.A. Record is 57 minutes, 42 seconds. So it's, this is one of those records where it's starting to, the, the program lengths are starting to creep up. You know what I mean? Just yeah. One of those early records to utilize the longer um availability of uh the cd format you know yeah um came out on a&m records uh produced by terry date who also did uh louder than love and he also has worked uh, with tons of bands metal metal church dream theater pantera deftones uh slipknot chastain <laughs> I don't know, you know, anyone out there is a big Chastain fan, but uh, yeah, but he's, he's been prong, around. Oh, that's right, he did Prong, Overkill, tons of bands. Yep, Helmet and Sir Mix a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, very. Uh, but you know, most of his work has primarily been in hard rock, heavy metal, that kind yeah. of stuff. You know, yeah. incredible, incredible list of records. When I check this out, I'm like, oh wow, okay, so that's a. Uh, quite quite the catalog he has yeah yeah and um apparently it the, you know the the working relationship went well on louder than love because they went back to work with him for bad motor finger and uh yeah so yeah this is kind of a pivotal record for soundgarden would you wouldn't you agree dude it is it is uh it was the first with their new bass player ben shepherd and um it's really like i don't know man it's, now, of course, it was the first Soundgarden record I got and owned when it came out. So I didn't know Louder Than Love or Super Ultra Mega OK. But when I later on got these records, I'm like, wow, there's like there's this quantum quantum leap between the, the first two records and this one. 
it's just like it it broke like they broke out so big. I mean, they had they had three singles. They had Rusty Cage, they had Outshined, and Jesus Christ Post. Heavy exposure on Headbangers Ball as well as 120 minutes. Um, yeah, that like and it it came from this year where everything changed. I think. I mean, 1991. If you like, if you see the records that came out there, especially this, it's the year that grunge broke. It had never mind. Never mind came out three days prior to Bad Motorfinger. Uh, Pearl Jam's Ten came out a month before that. The Temple of the Dark record came out in April of 1991. So, like all these great records that really defined this grunge scene, like to like the the big grunge scene, and we all know that there was a grunge scene before that, but that broke this music big. And uh, for me, the uh, Bad Motor Finger is the best out of all the batch of the 91 records. I I actually agree with you on that uh, because Soundgarden is actually my favorite band out of all the quote-unquote grunge bands to emerge from the Northwest uh, that yeah. made it in like a big way like that. I actually have to say that I like Soundgarden more than I like the Melvins at this point, to be honest. I was never a big Melvins fan. I, I remember Randy, you talking about this. Of course, like in the in the 90s, in that time when you, um, when well, I spent a lot of time as a teenager uh, recording 120 minutes at Banger's Ball in my VCR. Got a second VCR, hooked them together to make a mixtape of music videos. And you always had like the, the Houdini stuff, Melvins, or the Hooch stuff. And I got these records back then, and I really like them to this day. But I don't know, after them, they have so many releases, and they never really got to me that much. I mean, I, 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 I love Pearl Jam, the first three records. I know that's like I'm the only one out of us three that really likes, these, likes this band. I like Nevermind. It was a very pivotal record for me when it came out. Um, but... Out of, all, out of all these bands, Soundgarden and both Bad Motorfinger is the best. It's it's also in their catalog. I like um, what's it? Uh, Super Unknown was the next one, the the really big one where they got stars. Yeah, um, totally, man. Um, yeah, just real quick about the Melvins. It's like I, yeah, I uh, I think Houdini really was probably the pinnacle for those guys. And I think that, uh, you know, with all this nonsense that came afterwards, like, I know I'm probably going to offend a lot of people by saying that, but it's like, I got to think some, some artists are better at doing experimental quote-unquote music than others. And as much as the Melvins want to believe that they're these, like, you know, creative uh, virtuosos, I think that they're not as good as making experimental music as, like, some other bands i think they were better as a hard rock band uh, totally yeah you know? it's like especially on houdini like the these songs like the real bangers uh, still to this day what's that what was the big hit of houdini um the one they had the video for yeah i don't remember yeah. the name of it but yeah that's but that's so, it's great da, 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 da. that's just like what a great riff that is and what a banger of a song hooch hooch no i don't know whatever but like I, I've never met Buzz or Dale or, or anyone that's ever been in the band, honestly. So I, yeah. I don't, you know, I'm just making a big, uh, I'm making conjecture right now. But mm. I've always felt like not so much on like Ozma when there really was no one listening to the band. I mean, you know, mm. I liked you know Ozma and Bullhead and all those bands. I was like way into that when when I found out about it, you know. And then you'd get like 15 people go see them live. Like 
you know, whatever, man. Like I, it's not bad when more people come see your band and buy your records. And they, they always struck me as one of these, these guys like that. I, I know a lot of people like this that criticize other bands because they get popular. And they, mm. they feel like, oh, well, you know, you guys are obviously, they strike me as that type of thing where it's like, well, we can't accept the fact that more people like the band because when we were really doing the older music, no one was there. So fuck you for coming along at this point. And, yeah. and I, I don't know if that's actually how they feel, because, but I've met enough people in my life to see that as like a, a character type. Yeah. And that really alienates me from the Melvins because it's like, you know, I feel like, they're making fun of the listeners a lot of times, you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's like, well, if you don't like metal, then don't write heavy metal songs. Like, if you feel like dudes who are into, like, Slayer, you don't want them to like your music, then don't write a song that sounds like, like a, a, a Slayer song, you know? Yeah. When I I, I always have the, the problem. I mean, here, Germany, you, you grow up, see all these bands. Mostly they're American bands, and they, they become popular, and they get bigger. For example, I mean, I set up the first Torch and Baroness show in, in Mannheim at the Utes, where you also played with Anodyne. Yeah. And and to this day, like, whenever I saw Baroness play, I'm not a fan of the music anymore, but whenever I, like, go and see them, basically still knows who I am. And he's still like, hey, what's up? And he's super kind. And uh, when when we last like two years ago now when Ulta played with full force like one of the bigger festivals and I think I've told this before I hung out backstage and all of a sudden there were the guys from Napalm Death and they had food and they were like you want to sit here I'm like uh, okay so I sit next to Napalm Death and have food with them and they're just like okay who are you oh this band all right sweet but we played Planks played a show with Shrine Builder do you remember this band? Yeah, it's like the uh, you know Wino Scott Kelly uh, kind of thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it had Dave Grover in it too. Yeah. So and the, the guy from Om, the bass player. Oh yeah, I know yeah. his name. Yeah. So when we when we came there, I was like, "Cool, man! I will meet the drummer of the Melvins, and I will uh, we'll meet Scott Kelly, and uh, I'm curious how they are." And these two guys, like Scott Kelly and and Dave Grover, they never said a word to anyone. They had like there was just one backstage room, and they had one fridge filled up with Red Bulls, and they had a big sign, "Not for the support band." And we're like, oh, "Okay," man. and um, so they kept totally kept to themselves. And I'm like, I'm not like like the guy that's like, "Oh, I really love your band." I did this when I met Mark Burgess of the Chameleons, and I mean, you did it when you when you met uh, Tom Fisher of, of Tripticon oh, that you oh, talked yeah. to him. Yeah, and I, I wanted to do this with Scott Kelly too because neurosis is so fucking important but he he really was like no like you could really see like don't talk to me but but uh, wino and and the guy from um they they watched our show and they bought merch of us and they were really nice so like you have these these different kind of people and i also think that the melvins for me they feel like a band that like oh no i i've seen it all i've done it all i don't want to talk to anyone it's like you know i don't i don't see this because I am really appreciative of, of like when, when younger bands come up to Ulta and say like, oh man, I really love Ulta. And I think that's really cool, but I'm not in the game for that long and I haven't done as much as they did. So probably at some point you just get stale to the whole thing. Yeah, I, I don't, um, I, I, I've had different experiences with Scott Kelly. Uh, you know, it's, I, I, I find Scott to be a pretty open guy to talk to. Um, yeah. Wino, definitely, yeah. Like I, he's another guy. He very, we played shows with St. Vitus and and um, 
the obsessed and you know all those bands and he's cool mm. you know for sure but uh but yeah you know it's just it's, oh yeah basely man forget about it basely is the like the one of the coolest guys i know man as far as like that goes i mean yeah. john i mean way back in the beginning when baroness was on tour and playing in front of 15 20 people uh they played a show in new york and i briefly sang vocals in this uh d-beat style band called disnile and mm-hmm. we opened up for them and to this day, John remembers that show, and he always like, "Oh man, when when you played in Disnile, I'm like, dude, you remember the name of the band too?" I was like, "Jesus, you know, like <laughs> yeah. I barely remember that, you know, myself, you know." Yeah, you want to, you want? Uh, I don't know if we go too far off topic here, but you want to know the the story why basically remembers me? It's it's a kind of a funny story. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> so, like, you 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 know the Yutsmanheim. Yeah, yes, so yeah, like this this Antifa cross place, which is pretty cleanly, and it's an old um, an old flower store that they like converted into a into a venue, and love that place. The, the ton of shows there. Booking Baroness and Torch was the first show I ever did where I got sent a rider. Like ah, you know, yes. so, yep. yeah. mm-hmm. so like the first time, and I don't know, man, how I must have been twenty five by that time. And so, like, I got this, uh, I got this rider, and they had like all the stuff. So we're like, okay, cool, we can get this, we can get a Jack Daniel. That's not a problem. And it had a, it said ten pairs of white socks. And I'm, oh yeah, it's like ten pairs of white socks. Well, okay, there's a Turkish supermarket next to, like, next door, and they have socks. So I bought them ten pairs of white socks, and they they came, and I gave them the socks. And they were laughing and they find like they were like, okay, like I don't know. I thought like cool. They think it's it's sweet that someone actually bought socks. Later on I found out that there was a was a um, a code for cocaine. Oh wow, damn. I you know what? Yeah. It's funny that you say that because that's something whenever we go to Europe, if especially like like when we toured with the secret, I, I asked Marco to get me socks because that was like that takes up a lot of room in your in your bag and yeah, and um, you need to change your socks every single day on tour, otherwise you get athlete's foot. Yeah, and also the thing is that Europeans don't wear white socks that often. They wear it for sports, but Americans have always, like in my in my eye, Americans always wear white socks. So I was like, okay, I had the same feeling. They go on tour, they don't want to bring that many socks, so like get them ten pairs of socks. So I bought them ten pairs of socks. Oh, and later on, later on, a, f- a friend of mine who's who's like a he's not a dope fiend, but like he he knows his way around powders, I would say. Yeah. And and he was like, dude, that's right. Like generally, that's a code among bookers for uh, for cocaine. I'm like, really? Oh man. Okay. So that was kind of the joke. And like sometimes he was like, oh, the white sock man. I'm like, to this day, I'm hoping that he refers to that I was so sweet and kind to get him white socks. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, John's John's a sober man, so you know those are those are yeah. definitely that was definitely a while ago. Um, yeah, but also maybe it was for Torch. I don't know. They they struck me more as people that like to party, and uh, but that's also just superficial. They were all super nice, like both Torch and Baroness were such sweethearts. So can't complain, man. Yeah, I don't I don't know those guys really. I just know that one when, when Torch was on tour with ISIS. Um, 
when they played in New York, that guy like thought I was like some kind of knucklehead, like uh, like homophobic sort of dude. And he got gave me this kind of weird like thing. I don't know. Oh man. I I oftentimes talk about <clears throat> how I get misunderstood by people, but hey, fuck that guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if that's how yeah. he wants to see me. I got to eat. Yeah. You know, it's not. I'm not gonna like stay awake at night because that dude thinks I'm whatever. You know. Yeah, and and my my world never intersects Torch's world really, except for maybe one festival we played together. Yeah, I mean, what's that? What's that? That wave by in that time where this more I don't know rock rocking kind of metal bands, you know, like Kylesa got big and got more commercial. Yeah, Baroness broke big. Torch changed their sound away from the oh, fuck. What was the band before that? It wasn't Floor. Sleep. It was Floor. Yeah, yeah, right. Correct. Correct. So they're all like kind of like Mastodon got big with that style and they, they were like the forerunners of that. So, yeah, I mean, I think all these bands kind of deserve it because they played their asses off all the time. But I was never a big fan of Torch and I was never a fan of Kalesa. But Baroness, too, up until the Blue Record, I'm still down with. St after that, not so much, but still John, great guy. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm a John Baisley fan, and I want I want to see that dude succeed, and that's that's yeah. what I'm gonna say about all that. All those other yeah. bands, not I don't really know any of those people. Like whatever, we toured with Kylesa a long time ago, and you know Phil was cool. Uh, Laura was weird, uh, even though I drove her to Philly one day before that tour. She pre pretended like she didn't even fucking know me on that tour. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, oh well, you know, hey, I should have charged you more for gas money. I guess you know what I mean. <laughs> whatever you know oh, it is yeah, what man. It is. <laughs> but yeah, yeah man so um you know what, what one thing we have to mention is um is that ben shepherd this is his first record on with soundgarden and he replaced uh the sort of journeyman gu guitarist bassist uh jason everman who mm -hmm. was involved with nirvana and soundgarden yeah yeah he was uh one of these guys who played on probably countless shows with both of those bands, but never recorded any records with them. Yeah. Incredible. Do you wonder sometimes if this guy says like, Oh shit, man, I, I left the bands at the wrong time. I was thinking the same exact thing, man. Cause I, it's yeah. funny that you mentioned, <clears throat> you mentioned uh, Mastodon. There's a dude I met in Rochester a long, long time ago who was originally in Mastodon as the vocalist. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. 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 There's a demo that he played us of him singing, you know, like in Mastodon, as, but just the singer. He even moved all the way down to Atlanta and just one of those fucking guys who didn't have his shit together and they threw him out. And then, oh man, <laughs> then now look, now look, you know, it's like, yeah. But yeah, Everman, Everman um, actually uh, became a Green Beret after, <laughs> after leaving music. Oh. Yeah. Okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, and he did wow. tours in Iraq and Afghanistan and all this stuff. So, yeah. I mean, I think like when it comes to personnel in this record, Matt Cameron, like the, the original drummer of, of, of Soundgarden, he went on to be like the permanent drummer in Pearl Jam after they had 20, like 20, like I'm feeling 20 different drummers. But um, he's a unbelievably good drummer. It's it's really like do you like I don't know do you, did you see the Pearl Jam twenty documentary I yeah, know yeah, you're definitely. not a fan no no yeah. I, I all right not let let's just get this out in the open I I am not 
necessarily a fan of their music, but I find their story interesting with yes. uh, with okay. Pearl Jam. You know, and yeah. I, I, you know, I just I understand why people like them. I totally understand it. Like they're one of those bands that like I I get it. You know, but it's just not my cup of tea. And yeah. most of that band was in Green River, a band that I love. You know, yeah. and, and Mother Love Bone, and and I really like those bands. And I'm happy that those guys, uh, you know, are successful now. Now they're they're you know they're like Led Zeppelin or something. You know, yeah, they're one of the biggest American rock bands in a way. Yeah, and it's just like I also lost interest after the first three records. I think that's when they kind of lost the punk edge. But the story, I mean, the Pearl Jam 20 documentary, especially about the first 10 years, it's it's incredible, like how authentic these guys were and still are to this day. And as you say, like, I'm not a big fan of their music that came out later, but the story is genuinely interesting. And especially like when you watch this Pearl Jam documentary, the first 20 minutes where, where you also have Chris Cornell telling about his relationship of like being roommates with Andy Wood of Mother Love Bone. And uh, when he died of an overdose, like there's this quote where Chris Cornell like looks in the camera and says like, that was the death of the innocence in our scene. And I, you kind of feel it like when, when he passed in 90, I think 1990, they like shortly before they released Apple, like the only like proper Mother Love Bone record. This made such an impact, and then all these bands started to change. Pearl Jam came out. They had the Temple of the Dog record. Soundgarden changed from uh, from their uh, record before that to Bad Motorfinger. Alice in Chains also got influenced, I think, between Facelift and Dirt. There was also a big difference. So I think, yeah, this, this death of Andy Wood really had an impact on this scene. Yeah, I can relate to that. Uh... Because I'm I'm probably about the same age as, or unfortunately, Chris Cornell has passed, which was like, yeah. I really like bummed out on that when when I when he passed away, man. Yeah. But I'm I'm in the same age group as these guys. So back in like '89, you know, you're like a 19, 20 year old kid, you know. Yeah. And you feel like you're un- invincible. You could do anything, you know. At 19, I felt like I was indestructible, you know, like I could jump off a building and be cool and nothing would happen to me, you know, and yeah. these guys kind of on that other end of things, you know, partying, taking drugs, getting addicted to certain things. And, and when Andy Wood died of an overdose, I can, I can imagine how that was definitely a, uh, you know, cause I mean, there have been people in my life that, I mean, you, you, you know, there, there are people that passed away in my life over drug addiction and overdoses and it changes the way you see things. And I think yeah. you're absolutely right about saying that. And then as a result of it, the music changed. Yes. And I mean, that's uh, the topic that we we touched on when we talked about Faith No More, that like in, in the in the early 90s, there's there's a change in music in the landscape. And I think that the not, well, maybe it's the success of grunge, but also what grunge, like this, like big pop, like, becoming popular and what grunge brought to the table what got all this intention is like there's like genuine heartfelt rock music with a lot of texture but it's still heavy and it's dark but it's always kind of hopeful and i don't know like this is what what struck the chord with me what to this day is why i would say that this music is even more impactful on me as black metal was but like black metal broke in 90 between 91 and 93 too 
you can see the change in hip hop and rap where what we always talked about uh, we talked about Wu-Tang Clan before and, and Grave Diggers and all this shit so there's also like in the early 90s something happened and it changed the way people approached music you had the CD format so records could get longer you had more ways to express yourself I don't know and like for me I was a kid back then so in 91 I was uh, barely 12 so I was earlier than all my friends in listening to music and I just like bought the CDs and the music just worked for me. And it, it wasn't until maybe 93, 94, 95 that I understood like the, the procedure behind that. But you were, you're like 10, 10 years older than I am. So yeah. for you, like you, you could see it like change in real time, I think. That's exactly right. I mean, because um, by the time, you know, I, I got into music, really young because you know my parents you know whatever they were into like stuff from like girls groups and stuff like that and then you know i discovered punk so i like the when the grunge quote unquote thing happened it was kind of like the second wave of of like music for me you know because like when i was like yeah. very very young and in high school i was listening to punk and hardcore and well first metal really i mean but first and foremost yeah. i was in the hard rock and heavy metal then more more social more for social reasons i discovered like punk rock and and hardcore because it was music for like for kids basically you know what i mean like everyone that was doing that they were having all ages shows so you can go be 16 and go see a live show where you couldn't really go and you know at that age even though the drinking age in new york at that in the 80s was like 18 you still mm. couldn't go out to a club and see like a band play really you know another band so, you know, punk rock, heavy metal, thrash, like all that stuff was like the, the, the young era of my life. And then the second thing that happened was this kind of, um, you know, post, I'm going to use this in a loose term, post-punk, post-hardcore yeah. wave of music, which was grunge, because all those guys... I mean, if you, I remember reading uh, an interview with Kim Thale and he was talking about his influences. He was like Black Sabbath and Minor Threat. Yeah. And I'm like, that's exactly like what I, I'm influenced by. You know what I mean? It's like, you yeah. know, if you took a picture of me at, at 1989, like what I was like, I'm like, yeah, I love, I love Sabbath and I love Minor Threat equally. I love Black Flag. I love the Ramones. I love Slayer. All those yeah. bands were things that I was very much influenced by. And that's kind of what... I was able to ascertain by reading whatever interviews I could find about this band, you know, and yeah. you know, and even the way I discovered Soundgarden, um, I um, a lot of times I talk about this one record store in my hometown called the the Book and Record Store. <laughs> it's like they had like all the books I read as a kid: Robert E. Howard, H. P. Lovecraft, you know, J. R. R. Tolkien, like all that stuff, you know, Robert Block. And then they had all those early records I got, like the Ramones, Motorhead, Judas Priest, Black... Well, they didn't have Black Flag records there. They didn't have anything by SST. Uh, but they had like hmm. Venom records and all that stuff. Now, that record store closed sometime around 1986, 87. But there was another record store that opened, and it was only around for like maybe two years. And I, it's escaping me the name of that store. But anyway, I went in there. You know, one of these days when I was home from college, like maybe the summer or something like that, 
And the kid that was working there was like, I was just talking to him. And he's like, oh, you got to check this out, man. Like, there's all these new bands coming out of the Northwest. Green River, Mud Honey. And he's like, this band's Soundgarden. I didn't buy the Soundgarden record there. When I went back to college, I remember Louder Than Love had just came out in 89. And uh, so it was like right around my senior year. And I, I, bought, I bought that record at remembering what this guy told me because it was on this big display and that's when i really became fascinated and then i discovered like that there was this whole other wave of music coming out of the northwest mm. you know so it was like very very organic the way the whole thing happened because like i was like you know like growing out of listening to punk rock and hardcore in, in a way you know in a way mm. where it didn't resonate with me the way it did when i was 16 or 17 and I was like looking for other things to check out that were new. And here you go. This is like the, the logical next step of guys that were, inf or you know, people that were influenced by punk and, and rock and hard rock and metal and, you know, all this other stuff, kind of like putting it into the, this big aggregate of all these different influences. And that's kind of what I look at Soundgarden as. Yeah, it is totally. And the, the, in comparison to that, like for me, I think the the blessing there was that I was younger than all my friends when they like when they got into music I was younger than them and I was kind of a loner yeah. so I, my my dad like put up this this uh this antenna on our roof so I could watch American TV so I could learn English that was his idea because back then there was no Netflix where you just like flip a switch to change languages Oh yeah. So so I grew up, you know, like after school, coming home and watching like British channels or American channels, watching Transformers and GI Joe and all this American stuff that no, none of my friends knew about. And then then there was a show called Monsters of Rock, and and my father suggested watching this because hey, it's about monsters and they're made from rock and like <laughs> oh that sounds that sounds fucking cool. And then it had like, I, there was the first time I was like, I saw Metallica and Alice Cooper and Halloween and all these bands. But um, then there was MTV and I was hooked, dude. Like I was watching hours and hours and I watched everything that came out and there were no fanzines back then. Like I, there was no like big, big metal magazines that I could get. So what I did was like, I saw a band that I liked, tried to get the CD read the credits, read the thanks list. Oh, there's this band, there's that band. And then you go out and buy and check out CDs of this and that. And like there was, in the city I come from, there was no music store back then. So I had to take my bike and take a 40 minute bike ride to the next bigger town. And they had like this small music garage and that was the name. And they just had like CDs, secondhand CDs, a bunch of vinyl. But back then I was just buying CDs. And I remember like buying the Soundguard one and the, the Bat Motorfinger. And I think half a year later, it was, I mentioned this in the last one, I bought uh, Angel Dust by Faith No More and Generator by Bad Religion. And I just, I just bought stuff uh, like because the covers look good. That's the same what I did when I, when I got into death metal and black metal. It's just like, this looks cool. And I saw someone wearing a shirt of this in that band. So uh, thankfully, my dad invested a lot of money into like, he said, like, dude, here's your, here's your allowance. Do whatever you want. And I bought music of that. And I had no peers. There was no one in my city that listened to the same kind of music. 
so I sat at home and just absorbed all this kind of music. And of course, there was like grunge, there was black metal, there was hip hop and rap, and there was no one to like told me, oh, you're a metal guy, you're not allowed to like the Wu Tang Clan, or you like grunge, you can't like like jock rock or something. You know, it was just like this music clicks, and I listen to it. And to this day, I try to keep as much of an open mind. I would consider my like myself being a bear, like kind of a metalhead. Like, not a full-on metalhead, but I'm a music enthusiast. And get, throw every like every type of music you have, throw it at me, and I will try to give it a chance. And I think besides maybe ska and reggae, <laughs> and, yeah, it's like I can, I can deal with everything. And I'm, I'm really glad that I grew up in this time where you just, like, browse through music. I mean, kids nowadays do that, too, on Spotify or something, but it was different going to a store digging through records and that's what I love to this day. Yeah, definitely, man. And and um you know, just FYI to everyone out there, I'm not one of those guys who uh you know denigrates uh the streaming world because I, I stream music all the time, man. And I, yeah, I me too. I think it's cool that you can check out new things and and you can, you know, even go to Bandcamp if you want to buy the download and feel like you're supporting the band or buy records when you go to a record store or order LPs. That's cool, you know. But so I'm I'm down with streaming, you know. But um yeah, so when my first exposure to Soundgarden was was, you know, as I mentioned, Louder Than Love, which and and I got to be honest, at that time I I didn't really care about labels or anything i wasn't like oh this is on a and m man this isn't sst you know this is like mm. a major this i just was like like kind of caught up on how awesome it sounded like and how it was like this sabbath thing but then there was like the different kind of almost robert plant vocals going on and and there was a dark vibe to the whole record and then when bad motor finger came out I remember the first time I obviously I bought it just because I loved Louder Than Love, but I did notice it was a little bit more polished and there was a way bigger emphasis on melody. Yes. And yet it was still real heavy, you know? Yeah. And the 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 ending riffs in Jesus Christ pose. Oh man. Is like I was like, man, this is like, you know, I wanted to like like take a sledgehammer and like smash the walls down in the room I was in when I heard those riffs at the end of the song. And it was like, yeah. I'm like, man, this is potentially could be a, a massive record for this band because it's, you know, I, there was the video for Outshine and you got Chris Cornell, like with no shirt on. And, you know, I'm like, yeah, like people, like normal people will like this music, you know? Yeah. Yet it still appeals to me, the guy who likes the heavy riffs and, you know, the aggression and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's still, like, in comparison to the record after that, I mean, Super Unknown is way more polished and way more accessible. It still has, like, heavy songs and also very sad songs, but, like, the general sound of Bad Motion Finger is still, like, a doom, almost sludgy kind of sound. They, they used all these weird tunings and... and uh, I, I, I remember, like, when we, I don't know, it was probably the Metal Matters episode, the point of entry one, yeah. where we sp where I spoke about also Metallica, that I, like, when, when I, I grew up when the, like, when the Black Record came out. But the first one I got was Justice for All. Yeah. And Justice for All is, the, I think, from the sound, the chunkiest when that's the proper term to use for that. But you know what I mean? Like yeah. this, this, these thick, heavy riffs. And to this day, like this kind of 
sound really resonates with me. And then you have Outshined and uh, you have Room a Thousand Years White. These riffs are just so fucking big and sound so fucking good. And yeah, that's like that's still heavy for being such a successful record. It's way heavier than the rest. And Justice for All is my favorite uh, Metallica record, by the way, too, man. And and it's like, Dude. you know, like people are I, I, when I when that record first came out, man. I'm like, man, this is the future of music. This is like symphonies in in like metal. You know, I was like, yeah. this is like the future of of heavy metal music. You know, and people are yeah. like, oh, that record, fuck them. You know, there's no bass, blah blah blah, this and that. Yeah. You know, like Cliff Burton would have like, you know, and I'm like. Yeah, I wish Cliff Burton was on that record, you know, because I yeah. really think that it was tragic that we lost a, a creative megaforce like Cliff Burton, you know, but that yeah. record's a great record, man. It is. It even the funny thing is, like, back when I had, I think I first had it as a CD or as a tape, I don't remember. But it was, I, I just remember that my shitty stereo already was really, um, really, um, not not as res didn't resonate well with bass frequencies. So justice for all had such a chunky sound without having a bass that I had to like turn down the bass in the stereo so my speakers wouldn't like vibrate all the time. And um, yeah, I mean there's there's a version on YouTube where they actually like I I don't know if it's even an official release where they played bass on that record and now you can hear the bass too. Oh wow, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would like to check that out. Yeah, but yeah, man, this is um, yeah. The, the funny thing is, do you remember? I I don't know. Were you were you an MTV guy? Did you watch a lot of MTV? Yeah, the early '90s was an interesting time for me because uh, there was like, I um, I I remember when I got out of college, I had this job that I I put me in different parts of the country a lot of the times. So I would, I lived in Florida and I, and I lived in Washington state for about a year each. And when I lived in Florida, I had the whole television package, you know, cable. So I had MTV. All right. Then yeah. when I was in Washington, um, I did not have any kind of cable. And then all through the nineties, I never had cable TV. I, it was on mm. this, uh, you know, Huckleberry Finn adventure land for those, uh, <laughs> for the, for the decade of 19 of the 1990s. But I did see headbangers ball in, uh, when this record came out and when I was, okay. I lived in Florida and, um, yeah, it was, yeah, that's what I mean. It was cool. Like MTV had great stuff on there. They had, you know, prong, they had Soundgarden. You could see like, you know, all the other corny stuff too, but there was like a really good way for these types of bands to cross yeah. over, you know, and yeah. Alice in Chains, you know, Danzig, like all that stuff. Yeah, later later on that that came, became the like I think the way through Machine Head and the change in in uh, Sepultura sound became the path for uh, new metal. And I think new metal wouldn't have gotten so big if it weren't for Headbangers Ball and MTV. But oh, yeah, um, definitely, yeah. For sure. yeah. But what I was aiming at is um, so like I. Really, I, I came home from school, did my homework, I had some food, and then I was like, if my friends didn't call, and it's like, come on, let's go out and play ball or something. I was at home, watched MTV, and there was like primarily music. Of course, you had shows like The Real World or stuff like this that came on, 
But like in general, it was music-related programs. And then they started with the Unplugged series, I think somewhere around 1991 or 92. And I think the first one was R.E.M. or Eric Clapton. And later on, The Cure came on. And then when Grunge got bigger, it... Um, it's it's funny because I remember I, I tried to look it up. It's not on YouTube. I couldn't at least I couldn't find it. There was a trailer for the concept. Like it was a like a trailer promo for Unplugged, oh, and it said like, it, and it's it was basically saying so. What if you strip down the bands of their power and electricity? So it, and then you had like you heard like a big song and then you heard like an acoustic song and the riff they used to demonstrate how a rock band sounds was outshined by, by Soundgarden. Oh, wow. So it start it started like, it was like MTV Unplugged. Dun, 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 dun. And that's like, what if you take the power away from the bands? And then you hear like Eric Clapton strumming a guitar. And later on, Nirvana did an Unplugged. Alice in Chains did an Unplugged. Stone Temple Pilots did an Unplugged, if you want to call them as a part of the grunge scene. But Soundgarden never did. Even though with Super Unknown, they were super popular and there were a lot of songs that have, would have worked really well as an acoustic song. And I always wonder, and this is my conspiracy theory that I stick by, they, they, didn't, get, they didn't get asked because some dumb idiot used Outshine in the riff for the Unplugged trailer. So now it's out. This is my conspiracy theory. <laughs> Could be, man. Could be. You know? um, yeah. I, I, my favorite out of all of the unplugged, uh, unplugged episodes is the Alice in Chains ones, man. That 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 one was like powerful. You know. Um, yeah, it's a really good. Also, it's, within the within a... the context that Lane Staley passed away from an overdose shortly after that session. Wasn't that even the last show they did? I think they played another like proper concert that's on YouTube as well, like the last appearance. But it was one of the last things he did before he passed. You know? Yeah, and he looked like he was about to die on that. If you watch yeah. the video, of that it's like really sad, you know. And and um, you know, I I don't. It's it's well, another thing that's sad about Lane Staley. Staley is that he doesn't really get the attention I think that he should. You know. Yes. In retrospect. You know what yes. I mean? I think that um, a lot of a lot of people uh, overlook his contribution to music. You know? Yeah, yeah. And isn't isn't it incredible if you look at this catalog of bands, like how many unbelievably good, like incredible singers they had? I mean, Chris Cornell, such a distinct voice. Lane Staley, Eddie Vedder. Even though you might like, if people might not like their crooning thing, but he's a good singer. Nirvana, I mean, I think Kurt Cobain in, in, well, wasn't as good as the others, but he still had a very good charismatic voice. And, I mean, later on, if you look at like, Stone Temple Pilots as like one of these afterbirths, Bush, the British band that tried to be grunge, or Silverchair, the Aust Australian bands, they imitated the sound, but they didn't have a singer who like could pull off half the shit they could. Yeah, well, the thing with, with bands like, like Bush and all that stuff, if they had come out in the 80s, they would have been trying to play, like, glam rock, glam metal, you know? Like, I, yeah. they were just, like, coattail riders, in my opinion, you know? Yeah, and totally. Same, same thing with yeah. Stone Temple Pilots, if you ask me, really. I never really got into those bands. The first, I, I remember, like, being being obsessed with MTV. When the first record came out and had this hit, 
I I bought this. I think Core was the first record, and it has two or three really good songs. But it's so generic. When you listen to it nowadays, it's so easily done. I mean, it's cool because it's pretty much a, a slow punk record with like easy playable riffs. But if you compare it to what what Kim and Ben like pull off on on the guitars on on Bad Motor Finger, they're like almost like Mozart and Bach. Yeah. Yeah, well, those guys are masters at that. I mean, that the whole style, even though Soundgarden definitely spawned a lot of imitators, they yeah. didn't they didn't have the technical ability to really do it the way they did it. I mean, the the, the yeah. uh, Matt Cameron's drumming had a lot of odd times, and there's time changes and tempo changes, and you know, just um, like even though Kim Thale, I wouldn't, he's not like necessarily a technician when it comes to guitar playing per se. He yeah was able to develop a totally unique style that was the Soundgarden, you know, sound. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, that that's, like, even more valuable to me than, than someone who can tread and, you know, do sweep arpeggios and things like that, you know? Yeah. I I, I was never the guy that to sit at home and try to learn songs by bands I love. Like, not, not to an extent like a lot of my friends did. I mean, I, I could play, like, half of the Nirvana songs, but they were fairly easy. But then, like, as I, I, this record means so much to me. And I was like, dude, I never tried to, to listen to a Bad Motorfinger song and try to imitate it. I mean, I can I can play, like, the Outshine riff or something because it's, like, it, it's a drop and Planks wasn't dropped, so, like, it was easy. But one of the last things before Chris Cornell passed, um, Soundgarden, it was suggested to me on YouTube. They played a TV show, I think Jules Holland, and um, they played Rusty Cage. And like this, this is the first time I saw how they played. And I'm like, oh my God, I could never play this. It's just such a weird pattern to play. Um, yeah, and also the progress in the song. They, I mean, there are four parts to it, and it changes and it changes again, and it's like one big red line linen through it. It's oh yeah, I I cannot ha like voice enough love for this song and this record. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that pattern because that's kind of like you know they talk about being influenced by like Black Flag and all this other stuff, and I think that particular riff to me reminds me of like something that Black Flag would have had on like In My Head or maybe a Greg Ginn uh, Gone riff or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And it's, uh, like, it's also cool, for, I think, like uh, that Kim later on, I mean, he's good friends with Greg Anderson and he, he played guitars on that Sun Boris collaboration, oh, the wow. Altar one. Uh -huh. And um, he's a, he's a big supporter of Southern Lord and, uh, I mean, Greg Anderson used to be like in Brotherhood, like yeah. the straight edge band. But he's also, he uh, when when Planks had this one CD out on Set on Southern Lord, and, and when Danny and I, back then, were on our honeymoon and we're at the West Coast, uh, we stopped by in LA at the Southern Lord headquarters and we grabbed, we grabbed burritos with Greg Anderson. And then we taught, taught, like, told us that like how much he loves Soundgarden and how, how much of an important band this is for him and when kim agreed to like join boris and and son to do this record he said like i i was like a little child i couldn't believe it i'm like yeah dude i can totally understand that yeah it's it's cool that people like guys like greg anderson are, are um are, are repping them because i remember when i first moved to boston 
and like around the rise of all these bands is when I really started becoming interested in believing in myself enough to do music like on a level beyond just playing in my room. You know what I mean? Yeah. And because uh, you know I I went to college, I was in you know studying engineering and all this stuff. And though I love music and I was always going to see shows like live shows, I never really had the uh, it wasn't a priority for me to play playing bands or make music on my own. And this era of music is really what focused me again to do that but so anyway I'm, i moved back to boston after college and working and living in florida and all this other bullshit and then i'm trying to do a band and you know, I, I you know some of these people too so i'm not going to use their names but i remember mm -hmm. uh you know like the first band that did anything was this band called otis like we toured europe and all these things and put out mm -hmm. records and whatever the guy that uh they they were kind of like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, you know, you, you like Jesus Lizard, you like Unsane and the Melvins and all this stuff. Oh, but, you know, Soundgarden, you know, that's that's not really, um, you know, that's not cool, really, you know. And I was like, fuck that, man. This shit's, like, awesome. And it's like, that's, there was, like, this weird energy about that kind of thing, which I never really understood. I'm like, and it goes back to what I was saying about the Melvins, how it's like, because if this band was on some, some small label if they were still on cz records or something like that or still on mm. sst it would be totally fine to like them you know yeah and i, I hate that bias man I, and that that's one of the things i like that punk mentality like that you know independent like i get i like true independence where you do shit that you want to do yeah. you know yeah but this alienation that, that gets demonstrated by people uh, because someone makes a choice to do something that they is available to them, they have opportunities that they take. I don't know. I just I I've always had a like a a sore spot about stuff like that with people and how they're just like, look, hey, if no one's offering you big record contracts or opportunities like this, so let these people make their own decisions to do their lives the way they want to do it, and not the way you want them to do it. You know and. That, that was the one thing in the early 90s that some of these, like, the true, you know, really hardcore people were like, oh, well, you know, they're, they're on a major label. And I, I never really got into that, you know. And like you were saying earlier, 90, 91, everything changed in music. There was even that documentary, The Year That Punk Broke, which talked about yeah. that, you know. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's crazy. Like, the, all these theories, that's what I thought about. Like, when we talked about the Faith and More stuff and how, like, how these things changed – I looked it up again. If you like, if you see the bridge, first of all, like 1990 must have been like a really productive year because a lot of great records came out there. But then the successors, one or two or maybe three years later, the bands were completely changed. And that's what we spoke about last time, but I looked it up again. So you have Alice in Chains with Facelift in 1990 and Dirt in 1992. You have Anthrax, Persistence of Time in 1990 and Sound of White Noise in 93. Creator, Coma of Souls, 1990. Renewal, 1992. Sepultura, Arise, 1991. Chaos AD, 1993. All these bands changed their sound so drastically. I mean, Allison changed not that much. I give them credit for being an authentic band straight from the get-go. But you and I, were I, I know, will think the same of Anthrax. Like, respect, but not our band. But I like the sound of white noise thing because they're more like an honest 
more like a rock band and Scott Ian said like Twin Peaks and grunge happened and this influenced me and creator like the coma of souls I I liked it but I like renewal a whole lot better and that's a completely different band and I mean we don't have to talk about the change between arise and chaos AD with Seth Mortura <laughs> yeah yeah definitely and I don't, I don't know if it was like, okay, we've done this for so long and uh, let's cash in. Or if it was just like, it's time to, to grow up and be more, I don't know, more, more deep, more authentic. I have no idea. But definitely there was something in the waters back then that changed the landscape of the sound. And I, I, I tend to say that um, grunge has a big, important role in this whole thing. You know, I agree, and I actually had this point written down here in my notes, is that uh, progression, you know, it's like, yeah. sure, there are great bands out there that make the same record over and over again, and I'll buy every single one of those albums because they do this one thing that they do, they do so well that I enjoy it every single yeah. time. But then the bands I really like, though, are the ones who change, and it's like, it's not so much like people, and maybe in some cases it might have been like, all right, we have to like stay relevant. But I also believe that the bands that are the, um, you know, the the sort of harbingers of the new wave of things are the ones who are just like, yeah, well, right, we did this, and now we're doing something else because it's the next logical step in our progression as a, as a, as musicians. Yeah, you know, and it's like if if like if you went to high school, and you're doing this one thing, you know, I'm into video games, you know, and it's like, well, then next year I want to do something different, you know, I want to progress beyond that, and. Yeah, you know, that's kind of like how I always looked, looked specifically looked at Soundgarden because I never, I mean, I never met any of the guys in the band ever, but I feel like through interviews I've read with them, I never really got the sense that they were um, chasing fame in yeah. a way that some other bands were. Like, you never really heard about anyone in the band outside of, like, the music, really, you know? Yeah, correct. And... and I just think that they were just dedicated to making music because all the records since none of their records really sound the same. If you really think about it. Yeah. I, I just recently, I, I it must've, I, I think it was the first time that I ever listened to that record that came out after super unknown. And I don't What's the title? Is it, is it Soundgarden? Because they did one like this release, the, the reunion record also a few years later. So like I, I didn't even pay attention to them and I listened to them. And the one after after Bad Motor Finger, um, that was like uh, after after Super Unknown. I'm like, okay, it's it's kind of the same thing with Killing Joke doing uh, Nighttime yeah. and having su having success with Love Like Blood and then writing Brighter Than a Thousand Suns, which is like every song is like Love Like Blood. And which is still authentic and cool, but after that, outside the gate, they kind of lost their ways to to like recuperate, and then after like four or five years, bring one of the most extreme records they did. But yeah, I mean, bands. I think bands are allowed to try whatever they want to do, as long as it's authentic to them, and that's the primary thing they have to do. And I, I, dude, like if Ulta, like I mean, we're working on a new record, and if if that wouldn't have one blast beat, it would still be okay with me. But it's just like, I, I, I'm at this age, at this point, after so many records I put out, and I know you're the same way, I don't give a shit anymore. Like, I do this music for myself, and I want to, if, if we would love to do a hard rock record with Ulfa, I would still do it. But it's just like, 
we do like I think we both, you and I, and I, I assume Randy the same way. We appre- appreciate authenticity, and I think if you're like music nerds like we are, you can listen to records, and this may, may sound posh, but you can hear like is this a, a like a progression they wanted to do, or is this a progression they were forced to do, or they think they should do? Well, yeah, I mean, and I got to be honest, man, I've seen even. I mean, this is even funnier because none none of these bands ever became anything. But on like a, a, I remember in the late '90s there was a band that was put together by uh, you know a guy who was like very well known within the uh, you know independent music recording world. And uh, I'm not going to use any names. You know, people will know this thing. You know, a band was put together because they were and they wrote songs in a style that was going to be commercial you know because this is like uh after quicksand and you know uh like Mm. a lot of these bands that had hardcore guys and it became popular orange nine millimeter like all that and Mm. uh the one guy that was the mastermind was the singer in a very very popular straight edge hardcore band from dc and um he put a band of uh basically his acolytes together and then he got another singer from a Boston band that was incredible, and um, and vocalist was on the same level as Chris Cornell, and he he was the maverick because he wasn't necessarily uh, one of the followers of this other dude, and I remember it, I was in like not I wasn't involved at all, but like I was adjacent to this whole thing, observing it. And being like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, you know, everyone's really b- thinks this is going to be the next big thing, you know. And everything was architected in a way that mm-hmm. it was supposed to be. It was it ha- this has to be, succeed. It has to. It has all of the gimmicks and all of the little catchy song lengths and every the verse, chorus, everything. The record never even came out, man. And really? Like, okay, yeah, man. And it's like it came out much many years later on a on a on an independent label, but they were signed okay. to like. I, I, I want to say like Sony or something like that, like some massive, you know, money, money machine, you know? Yeah. But that's, that's kind of like the extreme version of this thing where it's like, if you chase something, you're never going to catch it. Like, yeah. even the music they were making was already dated by the time the record would have came out because it was following yeah. the blueprint put together like in 1994, 95. Yeah. And by the time they were kept, the world was on to in the next thing. So you can't chase that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, and like this, this, this kind of like, it, it sounds like, like hardcore Spice Girls or like the hardcore Backstreet Boys, you know, like a casting band. And I, I always have the feeling with Rage Against the Machine, like there's this rumor that I don't, I don't even know, like if they, they, that they cast, like we're also a cast band. And I mean, Zach de la Roca, Rocha, I don't know how to pronounce that. Like, I mean, he was like a famous guy in the hardcore scene for that Inside Out record he yeah. did. And then like Rage Against the Machine had like this, okay, we're like, this is protest music and it's it has like this hip hop thing going and um, where we were again with the, with the fishbone and all this stuff that happened in the 90s too. And then Rage Against the Machine came out and everybody went apeshit for them. And I was like, I don't get it. I really don't get it. And to this day, I don't think that I ever really considered myself uh, an enthusiast for Rage Against the Machine. And 
I don't know, man. It, it, it also it, it it's felt unoriginal. Like you know, it felt forced, and I don't know. I agree. I I um, you know, I I I've seen them play twice actually. One time they were, I think they were the support for the Rollins band, maybe. Hmm. Rollins had some really cool openers over the years, and um, but I I, I want to say that Rage was supporting Rollins, and that's that's how I saw them the first time, maybe. And then I also saw them at Lollapalooza the year that Tool played on the second stage, mm. and it was uh, that it was those two bands were on the second stage, so it was the third Lollapalooza, I think. And okay. it just never really like I remember kind of like, you know, I'm like, yeah, this is I could see this being big, you know. There was like this kind of interest, like, you know, because you got to remember there was like uh, Cypress Hill and House of Pain. Yeah you know, hip hop yeah. stuff like that yeah. was, was crossing over into like, you know, the kind of white boy like world that I was involved in. <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I, I mean, I, I've always, I've always loved like ever since, since high school, really, I've, I've loved hip hop. I've listened to like, you know, run DMC and, you know, a lot of that, I think is just growing up in the tri-state area. Like you get exposed to that stuff, you know what I mean? And then, but I mean, I've always more, I've always been like a rock guy. Like I into like rock music and metal and all this other stuff. So, but House of Pain and, and, and Cypress Hill was a crossover. They were a bridge into like alternative music or whatever. Yeah. And, the, and I think that Rage was part of that, that, that bridge, you know? Yeah. And this, this trend, sorry for, inter did I interrupt you? Sorry. I didn't have anything else to say about that. Okay. 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 Um, the the rage against the machine thing like the success of them also i think was the blueprint for we talked about it also in the last episode is like the judgment night soundtrack where you had yeah. house of pain and cypress hill beating up with helmet and like other popular hard rock i mean there was onyx and slayer which was kind of fucking cool i have yeah, to totally onyx and, is great man yeah i love that yeah, yeah and also like to this day like the faith no more booyah tribe song is killer um, so it had good stuff, but that was like, that's where, yeah, like you say, the white boys, where all, all of a sudden, like rap and hip hop and rock really fused together, which eventually became like new metal and later on this crossover bullshit we talked about last time. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Like it's Rage Against the Machine never clicked with me. I really like, I think Tom Morello is an interesting guitar player. Like he has a like weird technique and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. But it's just like it did click for me, and I think it maybe if I hadn't heard Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Guns N' Roses, no, not Guns N' Roses, uh, Soundgarden, like in the in the early like 1991 or stuff, then I would maybe would have fallen into the Rage Against the Machine thing too. But who knows? Like, there's another what if universe where I will be a Rage Against the Machine fan. You've got like yeah. dreads and and like a, beard, oh, like a like a beard maybe with like beads on it. <laughs> oh man, Bag, baggy pants and like a, oh god, yeah. What are those like? Chin, I mean, that... chin strap beards, you know. Oh man, yeah. One 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 great example of like what would you just said. Like Rollins had great support bands. It's funny, like that. Like great bands bring out newer bands and they grow to like double or triple the size of the band that they like supported at some point because we talked about the Deftones last time and that yeah. like Deftones is one of the few bands in new metal that we can respect I saw them and like they had two openers and there was the tour for White Pony and uh, the first one was a band called Taproot 
oh, which yeah. was like uh-huh. most most <laughs> generic new metal you could imagine. And then I, they were like kind of okay. And then the second band came out. I'm like, oh my god, two singers. One looks kind of Asian. The other has blonde hair. Why is the guitar player wearing headphones on stage? And it was fucking Linkin Park. And it was just like instantaneous. I'm like, oh my god, this is terrible. Of course, two years later, there were the headliners at Rock and Ring, and like the biggest rock festival there is in Europe. And like, oh man, yeah. But that's the way it goes. Yeah, the only time I've only seen the Deftones once, man, and it, it was at uh, like a, it was late. It was just like a couple, few years ago at, at uh, uh, Ozfest meets Not Not Fest when we played that, <laughs> and um, it was. Uh, they were great, man. I mean, they were cool. Like, people were going, losing their minds. Like, it was in California, so it's like, you know, part of, like, uh, they're like, you know, like a hometown kind of vibe, yeah. you know, and, like, it, it was pretty cool. I definitely enjoyed them. Oh, man, it's like like you and, like, my friend Arif and so you're all, all people that saw bands that I would have loved to see, but they didn't exist anymore by that time. So he, he told me, we were, like, at a Killing Joke show in Frankfurt, and he told me, yeah, a bunch of years ago, I saw Jesus in the Mary chain here, and their opener was Nirvana. I'm like, oh, man. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And uh, now, finally, finally, I can say something where I saw a band way earlier than you did. Because remember said Bielefeld? Uh-huh, yeah. I saw you guys with Tombs. I drove out there, and you played with Rise and Fall, I think, this Belgian hardcore band or something. Yep. And uh, on that stage, with a shitty bar in the middle of the stage... Um, I, I saw Deftones when they just released Adrenaline. It was oh, wow. their first tour. And like it was, I must have been 90, 96, 97 or something, 98 maybe. I was like, there was maybe 40 people. Like, I mean, that's a regular squat kind of venue too. And I saw the Deftones play there. Yeah. Damn, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that was, that was sick. I, I fell in love with them back then. And to this day, I still have high respect for this band. Even though the guitar player is a flat earther, I don't I don't understand that at all because the dude has seen the curvature of the Earth, man. <laughs> like the fucking yeah. dude is like flown in planes to go to different to go to friggin' Europe, man, to see you know, play. Know, so what yeah. what's that curve? You know, when you look out the window of the plane, you see like a a, a shelf or something like that. Like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. But hey, who are we to judge? <laughs> I think I can judge somebody on that. Like, I think I feel comfortable being judgmental of that, actually. Yeah, okay, okay. yeah, totally. <laughs> you know what I mean? What a, what a douche. Yeah. Man. It's funny you mentioned you, you slipped when you said Guns N' Roses because Bad, Mo- Bad Motorfinger on that tour, that's when Sound- Soundgarden supported them, I believe. Yeah, correct. Yes, yes. I, I read that too, yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's cool that actually, like, also, like, we had it about Faith No More, that Guns N' Roses, I mean, they were the biggest band by, I think, that time. I think even ACDC would have supported for them at Probably. that time. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. And they, they, they picked, like, these bands, and I doubt that it was just the management said, you have to take these bands along. I think that, like, I mean, we talked about it, that Duff McKagan, I mean, he's an ex-punk, so I, I guess he, like, maybe not so much Axl Rose or Slash, but I think Duff and Easy and these guys, they, they still had the, the finger on the pulse of time. And they were like, this is a cool band. Let's take along Soundgarden. Or let's take along. I mean, that's the same thing with Metallica. I mean, they chose Tombs for, for one of the festivals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's like, yeah, right. That never happened, and, man. <laughs> and, but it's like, I mean, they, they got Baroness to tour with them in Australia and shit like that. 
So that's very. I cool. don't know. Yeah. 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 Um, out of the gall of Guns and Roses guys, I think Duff would probably Duff and Izzy um, would probably be the two guys that I think I would have fun like hanging out with. Really. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Duff, like there was recently, there was an on Arte. This is a, like a German French uh, TV station, which is more arty, and they have like really good music programs too. And they had like a five, no, fourth piece documentary on the history of punk. So the first episode was British punk. The second one, no, the first one was American punk, then British punk. The third one was uh, conducted by Rollins, was about hardcore. Like right. the, 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 and the fourth one was after so many years, the, the California punk revival with Green Day and Offspring and all these bands. And Duff McKagan was in almost every episode and had such great knowledge and such an insight, especially into the hardcore scene. And um, I really like, he's such a genuinely sympathetic guy. Yeah. He has some, he's written some books, which, I mean, I don't know if I'm going to read any of his books, but he, uh, he was on the Joe Rogan experience a few years ago, and I remember really enjoying his episode. Oh, man, I, I recently listened to the one with Ray Capo because someone suggested oh, it to God. me, and that was like three-hour torments, man. Oh, yeah. God. I didn't listen to that one because I knew it would make me unhappy. Oh, that's like, he, he could maybe, like, maybe he could... Uh, convince Stephen of the Deftones that the earth is not flat because everything on earth is in the spiritual world or something. <laughs> that's a, oh man, that's a dangerous idea because there's a, there's a book about a, um, a uh, Swedish uh, serial killer. It's called Manhunter. Oh, and, you, uh, you spoke about this on yeah. Necro. I remember. And part, part of the guy's uh, occult practical, practical beliefs is like kind of b borrowing from the you know the like Jainism and all the other quote unquote Hindu Hindu religions. Even though you know Hinduism refers to like ninety different religions, really. But yeah, the, the idea that we own, that most of the world is 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 a, is an illusion and that we exist in this spiritual realm that gave the guy the green light to go, to go murder people. So it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, you know, we're all gonna you know be reincarnated or whatever. So it's cool if I kill all these people, you know. <laughs> oh man. Uh, but uh, the uh, the the thing that I wanted to talk about real briefly was um, the fact that there was a show with there's two things actually, Voivod, Soundgarden, Faith No More. That was a bill. That was a tour, right? Voivod, Soundgarden, Faith No More. Okay, crazy. At venues that Tombs has played at, like places that oh, only hold about three hundred people. Yeah. What a, what a, I would give a lot of money to see that right now. Yep. And then uh, Ron Martinez, the guy who, uh, my good friend Ron Martinez, a singer in Final Conflict, and you know he runs Crawl Space Booking, and he book he's he was a, he booked Tombs for many years before we, we got a different agent, and um, he uh, used to book a club in uh, I think I'm going to say it's Orange County, but I don't know exactly if I'm right about that. And um, he booked, it was the only time that Fields of the Nephilim played in the United States, like their only tour of the States. Fields oh, wow. Of, Fields of the Nephilim with special guest Soundgarden. Oh, really? Yeah. In like oh. 1989 or something like that. Oh, man. Whenever that Fields of the Nephilim show tour happened over here. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh. 
That's, uh, wow. And even that, like, that's another angle on that band that, like, um, some of their only interviews, back when I first started li listening to Soundgarden, some of the only media coverage and interviews that I read by, uh, with them were in this magazine called Propaganda. I don't know if you're familiar with that magazine. No, never heard of it. It, it was a great magazine, man. It was black and white. It was um, covered mostly like goth, you know, post-punk, uh, industrial stuff. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. And I feel like Carl McCoy was in like every issue that I ever read, actually. Yeah, of, of course. <laughs> you know, they had, um, you know, Death in June was in there. They would talk, they had interviews with, um, you know, uh, you know, Genesis Peorage. Like that would be the kind of stuff that would be in there. And then I actually read an interview with Axl Rose from Guns N' Roses when they first came out. And, uh, and then there was a, a whole, I think Soundgarden might have been on the cover of one of the issues. So that's... Oh, man. So the field's... Soundgarden thing to me was interesting because I a lot of my early recollections of uh, of the band was in the context of reading reading about them in propaganda. Oh man, God, that's cool. Yeah, no, it, was, it was definitely a, a, a very interesting. I, I I would love for there to be a volume that collects all those because I don't have I only have a handful of the of the of the, of the magazines. I mean, that's a, it has been a trend with like a lot of magazines to do this. So maybe at one point this will happen. I hope so. I remember a few years ago, there was some kind of like live video thing that went on in Brooklyn that uh, my friend Alish told me about. And, um, and I, for one reason or the other, I did not go, but it was put together by the people that used to do Propaganda Magazine, I think. And oh, uh, cool. it was some kind of like multimedia, like, I don't know. I was like, wow. Cause you know, like goth, goth stuff, like gothic kind of um, dark wave, whatever you want to call it. It's quite popular these days. So that older stuff, I think people are paying attention to it again, you know? Yeah, yeah, they are. And uh, I mean, there's a big trend here too. I mean, we've got a lot of great new bands in this genre where you can see like they don't try to imitate Interpol, but they actually know their old bands. I mean, Fearing, a band we talked about before, yes. they, they've got their game together and they're doing a new record already. Like again, one for the top five, I assume for the, for the end of the year. Um, and that's cool. I, I like this and it's, 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 it's going away from being hip again to like people that really love this music and try to, yeah, try to pay homage to, to the originators. Yeah. Have you heard that band Death Crux? That uh, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I love yeah. that band. Yeah. That band's like that band kind of yeah. hits it right on the mark for me because they have like um, yeah, like a very punk kind of thing going on. Like like um, like when I first heard Bauhaus, I, it was in the context of punk music. I didn't really know what goth was when I heard them, and mm. I was in high school. Oh. And, and then, like, I had a girlfriend at the time who was like way into like the Cure and all that stuff, and. She like told me that oh yeah, this is like this is goth it's like goth rock or whatever goth music, and I was like oh, right on I like I like that then you know, <laughs> and, you know <laughs> Christian Death you know well Christian Death w operated more within the punk realm and yes yes you know but they would have spiritually been more in line with with like Bauhaus I guess you know what I mean yeah, yeah. but uh, but that's how I think I I think of like Death Crux as one of those bands who who are coming from that direction as opposed to people who are coming from more, the more industrial like world, I guess, you know? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is there was also always more my my kind of vibe. Like that's also why Robs of Night is more of a guitar band than a keyboard band. Yeah. I would love to I would love to do something like Linea Aspera and all these bands, but I I just feel more, most comfortable when it's still like a rock band. And um yeah, and this these bands are do you know the Wraith from from California? The Wraith no, I don't Wraith, know. Wraith, yes. They're on Southern Lore too. And they're uh they played a bunch of shows with uh with Death Crux as well. It's maybe Death Crux, but a bit more accessible. Oh, wow. I'll send you the link later on. It should be right up your alley. The Wraith. Yeah. I like the name too. Yeah, yeah. They're a cool band. Yeah. And that's also like uh, it's cool that Southern Lord I mean for for a while Southern Lord turned into a straight up hardcore label. But Greg, Greg is like, I don't give a shit. It's my label. I put out whatever I want. And now he's doing like a new Iceburn record. Oh wow! And I'm like, I was like, okay. But he's doing like repress, like reprints of like old stuff. He did Casper Brutzmann Massacre, and and also he put out the Wraith. And um, so he's like, this is a band I saw. I like it. I'll release them, and that's cool. The uh, I, I always forget to order those Casper Bratzman reissues, because I'd like to have them on vinyl, because I only have CDs of a lot of that stuff. Yeah. There's um, there's one incredible video. I, I don't know if it's still on YouTube. It was a show in Berlin in an industrial building. It was produced by ZDF, like the second German channel. And it had like three stages, which were, they were all elevated in this industrial building. And we just had like these crazy lights. On the main stage in the middle was Einstürzende Neubauten, on the left side, it was a small stage, and like the the audience was in the middle, and they could just turn to the left and see the one band, then turn to the right and see the other band. And I think it was Einstürzen Neubauten on the center stage, Kasper Brötzmann on the left, and Wire on the right oh, stage. Man. Wow, that's yeah. that sounds yeah. great. I um, you know, I, my early early shows for Otis, we actually opened for Casper Brötzmann Massacre. We I remember you talked to, but that was yeah, amazing. And and I met Casper Brötzmann in Berlin. Uh, a few years later when we toured Europe with Fetus. And um, oh. yeah, it was, he was a very, you know, soft-spoken, cool guy. And I, I've seen, uh, they, and then they later, you know, in the 90s, they toured with Helmet. And uh, that was really cool, I thought, too. Yeah. But yeah, I need to get those reissues. Well, okay. I think uh, we beat the hell out of this one, so. <laughs> should, we, should we end up with, like, with our favorite songs or should we skip that? Oh, no, man. Let's do that. I, I already have uh, an idea what my favorite songs are, so go ahead, man. Um, for me, the one song, I mean, of course, Jesus Christ Post is rightfully the hit of the record and it's one of the best rock songs probably ever. Uh, but for me, it's Room a Thousand Years White. It's just the overall atmosphere of the song, the riff, the melody, the lyrics. That's my favorite song on the record. Jesus Christ post, um, holy water, going into new damage as the outro, like this last song. This this record is front to back perfect, but yeah, room a thousand years wide. Jesus Christ post, holy water. For me, it's Jesus Christ pose because of the awesome riffing on the song, and yeah. um, and also I, I really dig the vocals on it, and uh, just like he, you know, he has this like. It's like almost Robert Plant-esque vocals, which I've always felt about Chris Cornell. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, and uh, Room a Thousand Years Wide is my, those are my, my, my two top songs. And the rest yeah, of the record is great. Uh, Room, 
when I first got the record, I, I saw the title and I was like, oh, this, I know this song is going to be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's like, you know, I'm, you know, you and I both love words. We love titles. We love writing and that kind of stuff. And, and that title resonated with me when I bought the CD and I'm like, oh, this, this, I, I'm interested to hear what this song sounds like. And yeah, yeah, it was, um, you know, a catchy, it, it almost reminded me of like a Fields of the Nephilim type of song, actually. That's, yeah, actually, yeah, pretty accurate. Like, I, I can see that. Yeah. Especially like the heavier stuff, like the Zoom, the, the Zoom stuff and the the later, the, the, what was it, Revelation, the single, the yes. seven inch they yep. did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Kind of like this kind of stuff. You yeah. Know? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, and yeah, that's, that's, I came upon that like much later, like when I, like recently in the last few years listening to this record, I was like, oh, this reminds me of something that could have been on like Zoom or something. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much it for me, man. Yeah, very good record. Glad we got this out there. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, you know I'll talk to you next week. And Ralph and I will be delivering another episode on a monthly basis. So uh, so take care, everyone. <laughs>